Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. as tired as I am of being told how selfish we all are. Uh, It's been a very popular theory, particularly over the last 30 or 40 years, fed to us by biologists and indeed social scientists, that the human species is so driven by self-interest that this is our defining characteristic. So much so that even if we do something that seems to be altruistic, it's not really altruistic, we're just doing this to make ourselves feel better uh, or to look good in the eyes of other people. Uh, Apparently, according to this theory, evolution has decreed that we should be so ruthlessly competitive, so intent on looking out for number one, that if anyone dares to stand in our way, Uh, to get in the way of us achieving whatever our personal goal is, then we should act aggressively, even violently, towards him. That's that's in our nature. Well, let me invite you for a moment just to look in the mental mirror and ask yourself whether that sounds like you. And I'm sure if you're going to be honest, you'll say, well, it is a bit like me. Yes, uh, there are times when I am powerfully driven by self-interest, when I'm absolutely determined to get my own way. Yes, that does seem to be true of me and of humans. But look a bit harder, and surely there is a far deeper and far sweeter, far nobler truth about the human species And that is that by our very nature, we are social animals. And because we're social animals, we are born not to compete, but to cooperate. And there are good, powerful evolutionary reasons for that, which to my mind clearly outweigh the evolutionary imperatives such as they are to uh, respond to our self-interest. If you want to test the theory, just take a look around you. How good are we as humans at surviving in isolation? Answer, hopeless. We need each other. Look how we choose to live in cities and suburbs and towns and villages all over the world. Yes, there are hermits. Uh, There are isolates who really do want to get away from it all and just uh, uh, live in a shack with a dog, maybe, for company. But these are very, very... I'm sure you don't know any. Of course, you couldn't know them because they wouldn't talk to you. Uh, This is a very, very unusual um, form of human behaviour. The typical human lives in communities for the excellent reason that we can't survive if we don't live in communities. We have to cooperate in order to create the kind of living arrangements that we depend on. Communities sustain us. 
uh, communities support us, communities define us, communities create for us the sense of physical safety, the sense of emotional security that we all need if we're going to function as healthy human beings. But eventually it dawns on us, sometimes in childhood it dawns on us, sometimes it takes us many decades to wake up to this, but eventually it dawns on most of us that communities don't just happen, they don't just spring up spontaneously, and they don't necessarily survive. History is littered with examples of communities that have just fallen apart, uh, that are fragmented, uh, that have collapsed for one reason or another. And so that points to what I think of as the beautiful symmetry of the human condition. And that is that we utterly rely on communities to sustain us and support us and that those communities in turn utterly rely on us to engage with them and nurture them if they're going to survive. Now it's true that self-interest always lurks, we know that to be true, uh, and that in a way points to the classic human dilemma, that at the deepest level we are social beings and we know it, we know that our social identity really defines us most accurately, and that we are independent creatures with a sense of some kind of unique personal identity, and there's some struggle between those two things. Now there are lots of there are lots of um, metaphors that people use for trying to explain the internal struggles that we all go through, uh, the conflicts, the confusions. We hear about the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde within all of us, uh, or the left brain, right brain. Uh, listen to contemporary neuroscience and you'll soon abandon the left brain, right brain. Think of it as a useful metaphor, but it's not uh, as literally true as we once thought. Uh, the emotional, rational sides of our nature or the feminine, masculine sides of our nature. We think of these as aspects of human nature that are in conflict. Mostly they're not in conflict at all. Mostly we're just located at various points on continuums like that. But there is this deeper conflict between our essentially social character, our necessary social character, and uh, the desire to get our own way. We know uh, that a civil society relies on us behaving cooperatively, one might say almost uh, on us b b behaving courteously uh, towards each other, and yet from time to time we are driven to do things that we know are not in the interests of the community at large, but we just want to do them. That's the conflict. Uh, unless you've been in a coma, uh, then at some point in the last three or four weeks you will have at least glimpsed, at least on television, uh, a, a final in some football code or other. Uh, and as a society, human societies all over the world, uh, pay great attention to team sports. We understand that these things evoke a visceral response in us. Um, perhaps traditionally more in the male than the female, but that seems to be changing as well. Um, and of course there are good reasons why we get so worked up about team sports. They symbolise some of our most ancient and primitive uh, activities, the hunt and the battle. Uh, but they symbolise something else. 
uh, which goes to the heart of my theme tonight. Uh, it, it takes not long for a person playing in a team to realise that no team can compete successfully until its members have learned to cooperate. It takes some children longer than others uh, to learn that passing the ball to someone else is an important part of uh, how the game will operate, but that's the essence of it. That's what, that's what team sports really should... We think it's all about competition, but look at the successful teams. It's all about cooperation. And that's our evolutionary imperative, to live harmoniously uh, and to feel safe and secure within a cooperative community. Our mental health depends on that. We had Mental Health Week recently and so many stories that emerged um, during the discussions that took place that week were stories about uh, the contribution made to our mental health from robust, stable, supportive, cohesive communities and the price we pay in damage to our mental health when we don't have access uh, to that kind of community. It's this deep sense that we are social beings and that we belong in stable and cohesive communities that drives uh, what is perhaps one of the favourite fantasies, I think, uh, particularly of urban dwellers in Western society at the moment, in particular Australia, and that is the fantasy of the village. We have this little idea in our heads that if only we could move to a village, and when we say village, we're usually thinking of rural village, if only we could move to a village, that's where we could really fulfil our destiny as human beings. That's where there would be a stable and, co and cohesive um, a community. That's where uh, we would be able to resolve the tension between the, the independence and the interdependence. We'd be able, we'd have peace and quiet. We'd be able to write the poetry we've always dreamed of writing or uh, get involved in the wood turning that we always wanted to do. And yet, we'd be part of this wonderful community where the neighbours would be warm and respectful, uh, warm and friendly, but very respectful of our privacy, of course. Uh, there would be a little creek where the kids would be catching tadpoles and they'd be racing billy carts up and down the main street because there would be no traffic. Uh, they'd never be hunched over a screen in a semi-darkened room. Uh, uh, there'd be a charming little one-teacher school presided over by an eccentric but lovable schoolmaster, etc. Now, the fantasy, uh, of course, uh, never includes drought uh, or grasshopper plagues or snakes uh, or the fact that all over Australia, villages like that are dying out. Uh, the one-teacher school has long since shut uh, and you'll have to ship your kids off to boarding school if you want to live in some remote uh, place like that. Uh, nor does the fantasy ever acknowledge that mental health issues are much more prevalent in the bush than they are in urban society, or that respiratory diseases are more, more common in rural Australia than urban Australia and so on. But the fantasy persi persists because we know that there's something about the idea of a preferably smallish community that we could feel we belong to, which we know would be good for us. And the good news, and it's the central theme of my new book, The Art of Belonging, the good news is that we can live in what feels like a village absolutely anywhere. As the subtitle says, the Colin quoted, it's not where you live, 
It's how you live. I remember some years ago conducting some research on why people live where they lived and how they felt about where they lived. And one uh, particular discussion I had with a group of, a small group of young mothers uh, sticks in my mind. These, these young women lived in the Sydney suburb of Mascot. Now, if you know Mascot, you know this is right by the perimeter of Sydney Airport. And yes, uh, as we conducted the discussion, jets were thundering overhead, we were right under the flight path. And the burden of this conversation was that Mascot is perfect. Mascot is heaven. Why would anyone ever want to live anywhere but Mascot? Imagine people wanting to live in the eastern suburbs, they said derisively, uh, or the North Shore with contempt. Uh, mascot. And why did they say that? Because their kids all knew each other, because they'd formed a mutually supportive group, and they were living within their part of Mascot, surrounded by light industry and planes and all that, they were living a life that felt like the life of a village. It's no wonder uh, that this has become such a favourite word. You, can you imagine a cluster of houses designed to accommodate people in retirement that wasn't called a retirement village? Uh, we use that word as though it's such a nice word. It, it takes the edge off the reality of what's happened to you when you've been parked <laughs> in one of these places. Uh, in the same way you move into a high-rise uh, apartment block uh, and they'll call it now a vertical village once again to try and soften the blow even though we know uh, the more dense, uh, more densely crammed together we are, the more likely we are not to work like a community. We're likely to avoid eye contact in the lift and the car park and become obsessed with our personal privacy. But the word village uh, works its magic. You go to a sterile uh, regional shopping mall somewhere and somewhere in the middle of it all there'll be a little corner with a clock and a fountain and a potted plant and that'll be called the village square. Uh, so we're, we're obsessed with the village. Well, understandably because it's such a lovely symbol, perhaps a metaphor, even though much of what we fantasise about is now mythical or past, um, but we know that in there somewhere is how we would like to be able to live. And we also know, and I think this is what drives the fantasy so powerfully now, we also know that life in Australian society, in Western society at large, but let's think about us, life in Australian society has changed radically. That's no news to anyone over the last 30 to 40 years. The Australian way of life has become radically different from the way it used to be. And when you look at the sort of changes that have reshaped our society, what you realise is the cumulative effect of them is that they work against communities. They are factors which have driven the fragmentation of neighbourhoods. They have increased the sense of isolation uh, and loneliness. Now let me very quickly, and I don't want to get into heavy social analysis in this uh, few minutes we have together, but it's all in the book. Um, but let me just very quickly run through some of the primary factors which, which I think come under this heading. Big changes in our society, changes we've welcomed mostly. I mean, it's not as though someone did this to us, we've done it to ourselves, but add them all up and you're looking at a society in which it's harder to sustain the kind of uh, village life, the kind of community neighbourhood life 
uh, that most of us aspire to. Let, let's quickly look at the, the, key, the key changes. Changes in our uh, patterns of marriage and divorce. Um, 40 years ago, only about 7 or 8% of Australian marriages ever ended in divorce. Today, the Institute of Family Studies tells us between 35 and 40% of contemporary marriages will end in divorce. Now, I'm not against divorce. I'm simply making the observation that if that many marriages are ending in divorce, that's a major disruption, not just for the couples who are divorcing or for their extended families or for their fr friendship circles, but also for their neighbourhoods, uh, for the street they live in. Um, where, where this kind of disruption always sends ripples into the community. Uh, if kids are involved, of course, the disruption is compounded. We have in Australia today a million dependent children living with just one of their natural parents. Almost a quarter of all households in Australia that contain dependent kids are single parent households. And half of those, uh, those kids living with just one of their parents, um, uh, 500,000, half, uh, half a million kids are involved in a regular migration, once a week or once a fortnight, from the home of the custodial parent to the home of the non-custodial parent. This is mass migration, uh, which is disruptive. Many families manage it brilliantly, some not so well, but always disruptive for the kids, for the parents, and for the little uh, neighbourhood circles that the kids are entering and leaving on a regular basis. And while we're talking about kids, uh, another major change in our society is of course created by the plummeting birth rate. The birth rate has picked up, to be fair, in the last three years. It's, it's staggered up from 1.7 babies per woman to 1.8 babies per woman. Some people are saying we're having a mini baby boom. Uh, Call it a mini baby boom as long as you shout mini and whisper boom uh, because this is not a baby boom. Replacement level is 2.1 babies per woman. We're way below that even now. And we know what a baby boom looks like because we've had one in the 15 years after the end of World War II when the birth rate was 3.6 babies per woman. We're currently at half that. So I wouldn't get too carried away with the idea of a boom. Uh, the truth is we are, relative to total population, we are currently producing the smallest generation of children Australia has ever produced. This, this generation of kids will have the smallest generational footprint in Australian history. Now, there are all sorts of ramifications of that, but the one thing relevant to what I'm saying at the moment is just to remind us that kids often act as a kind of social lubricant, don't they? they? The kids get to know each other, the families get to know each other, and when kids are in short supply, that social lubricant is in shorter supply, and the easy contact made by kids uh, is not so easily made when kids are absent. We've responded to that, of course, as, as the birth rate has gone down, the rate of pet ownership has gone up, uh, and many people have quite transparently decided that a dog will be the substitute child and people do say, and there are some examples of it in the new book, uh, going to the dog walking park is a great way of getting to know the people in your district. There is a problem though because dogs are now so typically child substitutes, people are giving dogs human names so it's become confusing when you go to the dog walking park, you can't remember uh, whether Wendy is the dog or the owner. Uh, <laughs> 
So you just say good morning, Wendy, and hope you get either a bark or a smile. Uh, uh, another, another big change is uh, the rise of the two-income household. Again, I make no judgments about this. I simply observe it. For various reasons, the Australian middle class has decided that we can't maintain the standard of living we want with, without two incomes. So uh, in a two-adult household, with or without children, both adults are likely to be working at least part-time, if not full-time. That's fine. What it means is everyone's busier than they used to be in previous generations and there's not the time or the energy available for the incidental social contacts around the neighbourhood uh, that are such an important part of the social glue. The shrinking household, which has been happening over the last 30 years, which is a very rapid period for such a major demographic change to have occurred, uh, we've reached the stage where today the average Australian household contains 2.5 people. The biggest single household category now in Australia is the single person household, accounting for about 27% of all households. Put that and the two person household together and you've got about 52 or 53% of all households. Now again, uh, we don't have to judge it, we just have to notice this is a radical change. Uh, and what it means is, more people than ever before in our history are living alone or just with one other person. For herd animals who've traditionally lived in domestic herds of about five, six, seven or eight people, and 100 years ago that was an average Australian household, uh, this is a very odd change. It means the problem of loneliness is now a greater problem than it's ever been. The problem of potential social exclusion people feeling alone, feeling isolated and gradually coming to feel alienated, and other people in the street or the suburb uh, neglecting to include the solo livers uh, in activities of the street uh, are major social issues that we still have to address. The mobility of the population, we now in Australia move house on average once every six years, exactly the same as in the US. Uh, if you've lived in the same house for 30 years, Imagine how often some other people are moving to get the national average up to uh, once every six years. Universal car ownership has reduced footpath traffic, uh, which means even in our much-loved so-called quarter-acre block uh, uh, suburbs, people are coming and going by car. Foot footpath traffic has been reduced dramatically. You wave at a car, assuming that your neighbour is in it, but there's not necessarily uh, eye contact um, with the neighbour herself or himself. And I haven't even mentioned what some of you might think of as the most significant of the changes, uh, and that's the information technology revolution, which of course has created the wonderful illusion that we are all more connected than ever before, whereas the reality is that this revolution has made it easier than ever before not to be in touch with each other in the traditional human way, which is face-to-face. -face. Now, there's an enormous amount of research, uh, and there's a whole chapter about the online communities in the new book, but there's an enormous amount of research about the impact of information technology uh, on human existence. And at the moment, it's also new that the research can prove anything you want to prove. 
Uh, it's a bit like the Bible. You can pluck out whatever bit you like to support your argument. It's all there in the research. Uh, but some things are becoming clear. We have, as a society now, blurred the distinction that we used to make between data transfer and human communication, which involved real human presence. Uh, we're redefining the idea of privacy. We're redefining the idea of identity, as more and more people have multiple online identities. Um, all of this is still working itself out, but the thing we constantly have to remind ourselves of is that when we move online, which is brilliant, clever, convenient, uh, wonderful, especially for extended families scattered all over the world, all of that is true, but whenever we move online, we are stripping away at least 50% of the richness of a human encounter face-to-face. -face. And by that I mean facial expressions, tone of voice, rate of speech, posture, gestures, the ambience, all of those things redolent with meaning in a personal conversation, all gone when we move online. Well, I'll stop that lightning tour of how we've changed. Uh, it's all pretty obvious stuff. But, but just reflect on it for a moment and you see what it adds up to. It means that it's actually become harder for us to make local neighbourhoods and communities function. It's less likely that we're going to run into the people that we literally share common ground with uh, in the conditions that I've described. And therefore, if we believe in the power of community, and if we think that the local neighbourhood is a special case, which I argue strongly in the book it is, uh, then this means we'll have to work correspondingly harder uh, to compensate for all of these factors. We say this about human relationships of every kind, don't we? You have to work at a marriage or it'll fail. You have to work at a friendship or it'll, uh, it'll fizzle out. Well, you have to work at a neighbourhood. Uh, you have to work at making these connections and associations. So what does make a community function? What, what is it that makes a neighbourhood uh, work like a village? Well, of course, there are urban planning uh, issues involved. Every neighbourhood needs places, spaces, where people are naturally inclined to congregate or run into each other without having made an appointment to see each other, hubs, uh, the library, the school, the church, uh, the shopping centre, the park, all of these things are vital to the life of a neighbourhood that's going to function like a neighbourhood. But the key factor, of course, is our personal determination to make it work. In some of the most formless, unprepossessing, apparently uninviting suburbs in our major cities around Australia, you can find people who have made it work. Uh, because some people in the street or the suburb have decided that something has to be done to make sure we get together and spend more time with each other and so on, uh, learn to look out for each other's well-being uh, and, and make the place feel safe and secure in the way I've suggested is so essential to us. Uh, just to wrap this up, I want to read a brief story from the new book. As Colin said, it, I mean, it's a, it's a book of social analysis. Uh, it's, it's a non-fiction book, but almost 50% of the text is fiction. Well, thinly disguised true stories uh, coming from my research. I've created this, this fictitious suburb called Southwood, uh, which of course is many 
sub-suburbs, there's Southwood Rise and Southwood Fields and Southwood Ponds and East Southwood and Old Southwood in the way that these things evolve. Um, but this is to illustrate the themes that um, obviously that I'm talking about in the social analysis. So just a very short uh, story from the life of Southwood. Uh, Kendall Street in Southwood Fields had been a close community in the 1970s, full of families with young children. And as the children grew up and moved elsewhere, some of the residents sold the family home and moved to apartments or to smaller houses closer to the city. Some moved interstate to be closer to grandchildren. Others stayed to watch a new generation of families arrive and begin the cycle all over again. When a young Vietnamese couple, Jason Ng and his heavily pregnant wife, Victoria, moved into number eight, their next door neighbors on both sides welcomed them. But Victoria and Jason were both working and there'd not been much time to connect with other people in the street before their baby was born. They'd both come to Australia as students and then been granted permanent residency, so they had no family in Australia. When their baby died in his cot, aged three months, the young couple felt their world had collapsed. They were devastated by shock and grief. They called their parents in Vietnam and both mothers agreed to come out, though it would take a little time to organise. The appearance of the ambulance had triggered an immediate reaction in Kendall Street. The next door neighbours had insisted on bringing Victoria and Jason into their home for a cup of tea and something to eat. Those neighbours in turn had been phoned by various other people in the street inquiring what had happened. Over the following days, a stream of local people came to the house to introduce themselves and offer support. One did some shopping, one mowed the lawn, several people prepared simple meals and dropped them in ready for heating. At first, Victoria and Jason, inconsolable, didn't know whether they wanted to be left alone or embraced by these kindly strangers. But the trickle of visitors came anyway. No one stayed for long, but people felt it was important to make sure everything possible was being done for the grief-stricken couple. When it was decided that a service would be held in the funeral director's chapel, the street turned up and packed the place out. Weeks passed. Waves of grief still engulfed the young couple without warning, but they gradually embraced the idea that life could go on and they were comforted by the kindness of their neighbours. When the two mothers finally arrived, they met several of the families in Kendall Street and were assured that Victoria and Jason would never feel alone or neglected here. Well, that's a sad story. Uh, the content is sad, but the story is sad in another way, isn't it? That it took a tragedy to get the street together and the, the, the story goes on uh, through the book. We hear more about Jason and Victoria and indeed about the life of Kendall Street. Uh, and when there is a tragedy, when there's a bushfire or a flood or a death uh, or an accident or a storm, suddenly neighbours know what it means to be neighbours and they're all out of their houses pitching in, getting to know each other and helping out because help is needed. And then very typically what they say is, isn't it sad that we needed a tragedy before, you know, I've, I've waved to you for years, but we've never actually stopped and introduced ourselves. It's become a cliche, 
in major cities around Australia that we don't know our neighbours, that you feel like a stranger in your own street, that stuff goes on, you, you don't... We, we hear these awful stories in the news, don't we, about people who died and no one in the street even noticed uh, in a recent case for some months, let alone days. Uh, and we don't say any of that with pride, do we? No one says, I finally achieved my object, I no longer know my neighbours. Uh, no, we say this with sadness because we know that isn't how it should be, that isn't, how, that isn't the kind of society we want to live in. The kind of society we live in is built up street by street uh, from people who've understood the critical importance, not just of liking our friends and spending time with them, but of acknowledging that by moving into a street we have declared that we will be part of this neighbourhood. Mostly, we don't interview the neighbours before we buy a house. Some people do. I think that's a very rational thing to do. Mostly, we just fall in love with the house, buy it and hope for the best. And all over Australia, uh, uh, in, in thousands and thousands of cases, that little miracle of neighbourhood actually happens, where you find that the neighbours will be good neighbours. Not always. Uh, and for the reasons that I've been suggesting. It takes a little more effort now than it used to. But if we neglect it, we will pay uh, a high price. Uh, it's certainly the case that when people come to a serious understanding of who they are, and some people spend their lives on the quest to, for the answer to the question, who am I? But when they come to the, to the end of that quest, uh, they will discover what my psychological hero, Carl Rogers, uh, once said when he was reporting on his own clients over years. And Rogers said, when my clients come to a real understanding of who they are, it is always to realise that they are not alone, that their identity depends on being part of a family or an organisation, uh, a community, a neighbourhood of some kind. As I say in the book, you don't really know who you are until you know where you belong. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, we have plenty of time for questions and as Colin said, there are two microphones around, so it doesn't have to be a question. If you'd just like to tell us a story about a neighbourhood that did or didn't work or Anything else? Yes, thank you. Yes, thanks a lot, Hugh. It's been most um, interesting. Thanks a thank lot. You. I've got a question. You um, <coughs> discussed an issue of residential community. Um, young people, say 18 above or 16 above, form academic communities, and we're part of one here. Um, how would you say the influence of the push for online courses, casualization? of academic staff and decreased face-to-face -face contact mm. on actually development of these young people and their sense of belonging mm. and relating to other people. Mm. Yes, thank you for that. Um, yes, the, the MOOC uh, revolution, massive online open courses as they're called, is underway. I mean, it's happening uh, around the world. It's interesting what's starting to happen in universities that are adopting uh, online versions of, and most universities have online alternatives to live lectures, uh, but what's starting to happen is a revival of the traditional small tutorial group uh, 
uh, as we begin to realize that the online lecture might be terrific uh, if you think of it just as data input like a textbook, um, but what you've lost when you've gone to the online lecture is interaction, so we have to compensate. And anyone who knows anything about education with a capital E will say it comes out of a relationship between a teacher and a pupil, to use the old-fashioned expression. And if you eliminate that relationship, then what happens is mere data transfer. And that's not what we normally think of as education. Education is a painful, interactive, human process. Uh, and I think at the moment, seduced by the brilliance of the technology, we're thinking, well, we could take the best possible lecture on this subject and put it online, and then the students won't have to put up with second-rate lecturers, etc. Well, okay, that's an, that's an alternative to a textbook. What are we going to do about education? Uh, so I think the idea that the online campus will gradually replace this is uh, nuts, uh, just crazy, um, because that would mean we'd turned our back on what we know to be the truth about the psychology of education. Yes, there's two questions down here, yes. Uh, when you take your book, The Art of Belonging, it suggests that this is an art rather than a science. But at the same time, when people are alienated, ostracized, or feel on, on the outer, uh, there has to be some reason for it. There has to be some responsibility. And we're, we are very interested these days in outsourcing and making sure we, we, we identify a victim. But where does the problem lie? Does it lie with civic policies, or does it lie with the individual? Who has the responsibility to come back again to the centre? Hmm. Uh, well, the answer, I think, is both. Um, but I always think in such matters the first responsibility is individual. The first responsibility of a person who lives in an apartment or in a street, in a highly dense urbanised setting or in a more strung out uh, suburban uh, setting, the first responsibility, because we understand our destiny as social creatures, first responsibility is to make sure that the people in our immediate vicinity are all known to us. Not that they're going to become our friends, but they're our neighbours because they're there, and we've got to make sure that they are included in the street party or the backyard barbecue on Australia Day, whatever symbolic thing we might do. Um, now, some of those people will be unattractive to us. Some of those people will seem very different from us. We won't approve of their politics or their religion or the way they raise their children or uh, the music they listen to. Irrelevant. They are neighbours. We're not choosing them as friends. Uh, people talk about how hard it is to maintain a community when we don't have shared values. Well, how many values do we expect people to share? In a Western liberal democracy such as Australia, it's a fairly short list. We want them to sign up to the rule of law. Uh, we want them to respect the concept of parliamentary democracy. We want them uh, to, uh, to acknowledge freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of belief, freedom of the press. Uh, we want them to understand that prejudices against minority groups will not be tolerated. And that's about it. 
It's a pretty short list and we have it in common with many, many countries around the world. The question of what their personal beliefs are or what their ethnic origins might be or what kind of food they like or any of those things, private, personal. Uh, nothing to do with whether we can make this neighbourhood function. So I think we have to... I think this is a moral test bed. It's OK to talk about how we are morally highly evolved creatures. The test of our moral sensitivity is not that we're nice to our kids or kind to our friends. The test of our moral sensitivity is whether we have understood that the strangers in our midst are part of us, that we can't have an us and them kind of approach, especially within a neighbourhood. But civic policy does come, I mean, you make an excellent point. Uh, we can uh, have leadership, political and cultural and otherwise, that encourages this inclusive approach, this tolerant approach, uh, encourages us to acknowledge uh, that, that wherever you are is a society and we have to nurture it and make it work, or it can discourage that. I mean, uh, without wanting to be political, uh, let, let, let's just pluck out of the contemporary political discourse the, cons the, the, the term Team Australia. As soon as you say Team Australia, that's an exclusivist thing. That's as though to say there are people in our midst who are not on the team. Well, there are people in our midst who weren't born here, like our Prime Minister wasn't born here, uh, and many others, all about 50% of us either not born here or at least one parent not born here. Um, but, but we include. That, that's our nature. And it's been a spectacularly successful... The Australian project uh, of bringing people here from, I think, about 180 different birthplaces around the world has been spectacularly successful. But we put it at risk whenever we fail to encourage inclusion and whenever we fail to support people who are trying to make communities work. Yes, there was another question right here. Sorry, yeah, thank you. Hi, Hugh, uh, Alex Gosman. Um, I suppose I asked this question from a degree of vested interest as we reach a stage where the baby boomers are beginning to retire. I suppose, what are, what are their expectations around community involvement um, when they suddenly find themselves with a lot more on their hands, which you know, to a lot is uh, something of fear. Um, yes. Are they going to sort of solve that by doing these online courses, um, you know, travelling independently with their immediate family, or yes. are they thinking more around retirement villages, providing a community, or something, providing something to you know non-government organisations and so on? Mm. I suppose to the extent your research could provide some findings, that'd be interesting. Yes. Yes. Thanks for that. Um, my, my understanding of the... Well, now, let's, let's be clear about the boomers. They were the generation born between 1946 and 1961, uh, so they're now in their sort of early 50s through to almost into their late 60s. Um, so a lot of them still have a long way to go. Uh, in fact, they all would say they've got a long way to go. Uh, they would say, we are the youngest generation in history, we are the best dressed, the best fed, the fittest, the best educated, all of which is true. And their, their life expectancy is the greatest of any uh, Australian generation so far. Uh, so retirement is not a word that they typically use. In their vocabulary, it seems to me, the last time I did some research on them, the word retirement had been re replaced by refocusing. We're not retiring, we're refocusing. And refocusing includes all the things on your list. You know, we may do an online course, or we may go and do an actual adult education course. Uh, we may uh, spend three months in a caravan. Uh, but 
Uh, and we may uh, want to go back to work on a part-time basis or stick with the job that we had on a part-time basis, but almost always this very um, articulate, well-educated, and generally speaking healthy generation who are becoming our tribal elders will be expecting to play a very significant role in the local community and to be, we are going to have an army. I mean, there are many organisations now who say, sorry, we've got, we've got enough volunteers, we can't take any more for the time being because this huge cohort want to do something and they've been used to doing something and indeed they've been used to changing the world. That, they're the opposite of the current generation of kids. They were the biggest foot, generational footprint we'd ever seen. Um, relative to total population. So I think the news about the baby boomer contribution to the life of local neighbourhoods and communities is wonderfully good news. I think they're going to be huge contributors uh, and they are going to expect to be taken seriously as tribal elders in the way that no previous generation of tribal elders ever expected. When people in previous generations said when our hair turned grey we became invisible, Baby boomers are not going to tolerate invisibility. Yes. Oh, oh sorry. Sorry. Oh, right, there's one here and then at the back, yes. My question has been substantially answered by the questioner there. But, uh, I mean, you made the comment about Team Australia, and that's a little bit alienating, uh, and how successful we Australians have been at making people feel belonging. But, but in the last few years, 56% of our population growth has been due to immigration rather than birth. Yes. Now, is that going to put a greater pressure on us to try and make people feel that we love the art of belonging because we now see in the media a few youths feel they're not belonging and they've gone yes. somewhere Yes, yes. Yes, thanks for that. And it, it obviously does uh, create, it does increase the pressure. It increases the responsibility on the host community to act like a host community because, as you say, I mean, if, if we didn't have uh, a substantial immigration and refugee program, then we would soon reach the point where our population began to shrink with a birth rate so far below replacement level. Uh, there's so much movement of refugees now around the world that even countries like Italy, with a birth rate of something like one4 babies per woman, a lot of disobedient Catholics in Italy, uh, uh, they've got this huge influx. I mean, make our trickle of refugees and asylum seekers. They've got this absolute tsunami of asylum seekers uh, who are being absorbed. Many of them are moving through Italy and to other parts of Europe. But, um, but they're, they're shaming us by the way they're doing it. Um, yes, it is a greater challenge, there's no question. And of course, we're being encouraged to think of particular uh, um, cohorts within the contemporary uh, immigration intake as especially dangerous. And obviously, Muslims is one. We're talking as though Australia is about to be overrun by Muslims. 2.2% of the Australian population are Muslims. Uh, the fastest growing religion in Australia is Hinduism. Uh, the vast majority of asylum seekers are not Muslims. I mean, most of the myths about all of this are just myths, but they've taken root in the popular consciousness. Um, but yes, uh, when we rely more and more on immigration to maintain or increase our population, and the immigration becomes more diverse, though it's still predominantly um, 
Western Europe, Anglo-Saxon and New Zealand, a major source of immigrants uh, at the moment, um, but increasingly Asian as well. Um, yes, we have, to, we have to work harder at it. And to, to retreat from it and say, I don't like the way, this is all a bit ugly, you know, I was okay with multiculturalism when it was a few Greeks and Italians, uh, but now we've got all this, uh, you know, to retreat from it is to deny what the Australian project has always been about. Uh, to accept that what you're saying is true means we've got to just work a little harder at being the hosts. Yes. Hello, Hugh. Rena Atko. Um, I wanted to ask you a question about um, your research in terms of the village in your own home, also known as the sandwich generation, where you've got ageing parents or parent living with you, um, uh, Gen X, part of that 30, 40% who've divorced and come back with their families, yep. and, um, and maybe Gen Ys who are yet saving for that elusive um, first time. Mm. Um, I frankly would love to be lonely or to, <laughs> <have> <laughs> to, to frankly be able to have the opportunity to move every six years. Yes. Maybe some of those people might drop off my village. Yes. But I'm interested to know what your research indicated. Um, yes. And, or did, did you discover anything? Yeah. Yeah, look, that's right. We're, we are at every point on the spectrum, aren't we, in, in contemporary Australian society? And the so-called sandwich generation, which has been an emerging phenomenon for 40 years, people have been writing about it, but it's now a lot of people are now really experiencing it because their parents are living longer than expected uh, and their kids are hanging around longer than expected or going and coming. Uh, so, yeah, this, this uh, creates great pressure. Uh, particularly on housing stock, which was typically, if it was built in the, in the, especially if it was built in the second half of the 20th century, it was built for a nuclear family, and now we're getting uh, three generations under one roof, uh, or two generations of adults, as Gen Y refused to leave. Uh, uh, and this, this creates pressures that we hadn't fully anticipated. Uh, but, but let me say, uh, by way of reassurance, this is really good for your mental health. Uh, it doesn't feel good all the time, but one of the things we know about keeping the brain plastic and alert and alive and keeping ourselves mentally young, it's not a crossword a day, it's living with a bit of chaos. The, the unexpected crashing into your life, having to deal with a generation that you thought you would be shot of by now, uh, but you've got to deal with their friends, their music, their sexual habits, etc. It is very good for you. Uh, I did, in some research I was doing recently, uh, I did hear a mother of four kids, which is very unusual in Australia at the moment, uh, saying that she is still a regular churchgoer, even though she doesn't have any really identifiable beliefs, and her friends all think she's nuts, but it's an hour of peace once a week. <laughs> Right. Yes. Last question. Yes. Yes. Thanks, Hugh, for a most interesting evening. Um, in the news is the death of Gough Whitlam. Uh, would you honour us with some reflections on Gough Whitlam and his contribution to Australia? Yes. Um, just about everything that could possibly be said about Gough Whitlam was said yesterday and last night. 
Um, but the, yes, there are, there are some things I think we ought to acknowledge. It's a lovely thing to raise in the context of, of this conversation um, because there is, uh, there is a leader who is now generally regarded as having presided over an incredibly unsuccessful government uh, that, that made an economic uh, mess and all those things that, that um, even Labor supporters will say, but who nevertheless, in spite of all of that, transformed Australian society in the space of three years. We can hardly imagine now that any figure could be so influential that everything from women's rights to Aboriginal land rights uh, to liberalised uh, divorce, um, I mean, we, we know free education, universal health care, an incredible list. I didn't even realise until I heard it said several times yesterday that sewerage in the outer suburbs of Brisbane and Sydney and Melbourne, courtesy of uh, federal government grants, courtesy of Whitlam's vision that this was an outrage and we'd better fix it. So what, that, what does that demonstrate? It demonstrates that on the national stage, as in the street, a person who has a vision and the courage to articulate it and, and do everything possible to make it happen can actually uh, change things at a rate that we would normally say is impossible. But the Whitlam experiment uh, and the Whitlam legacy reminds us that it can happen. And even his detractors who want to attack the record of the government, and towards the end it was a real mess, there's no doubt, uh, but even his detractors will acknowledge that no one before or since had such breadth of vision and such determination to do what we all dream of when we think of um, political change or cultural change, and that is someone who really has a sense of what kind of society we want to become and is determined to make that happen. Now, most of us, or none of us, will be Whitlams, but all of us live in a street. And, and really, the, 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 the core message, I think, of this is in the street and in the family and in the workplace, where we are, the dream of the kind of society we would like to live in can be made true on a small scale. Thank you. The issues that Hugh outlined affect every one of us, and I was reminding, reading at the, the British Financial Times at the weekend, Simon Cooper was talking about the growing inequality in British society, which of course occurs in many Western societies, and he reported on a poor neighbourhood in Manchester, and said he was struck by the omnipresence of community. People needed each other in ways that middle class neighbours didn't, minding each other's kids and grannies and popping to the shop for neighbours stuck at home. He speculated that many working class people are now shifting to right-wing parties because they promise a sense of commitment, and he quoted from the Catalans to UKIP. In a book in 2013, Joe Lindsay and Jan-Marie Marr highlighted, as Hugh did, many of the issues for families in society today, not least blurred work and home boundaries and the impact of social networking. In Hugh's book, which I hope those who haven't bought the book will do so and get it signed afterwards, he comments a great deal, um, and we would have liked to have heard more of that in some sense because of the anecdotes he has on the social issues about mobile phones and social networking. And he says that 50% of Australians believe they couldn't live without their mobile phones. And he cites the instance that 50% of Australians having sex stop when the mobile phone rings. <laughs> 
I'm not sure how he did the research for that. But, <laughs> and again, while the internet has allowed the virtual networks, it's lost that physical presence. And Paul Robertson, his recent book, The Impulse Society, believes the internet encourages narcissism and is leading to a world where selfishness rules, which is where he started. He concludes that the irony of the impulse society is that for the emphasis on instant gratification, but it only leads to more anxiety. And apparently, while we've been growing richer, have we been going any happier? And a recent study has shown that the happiness gauge has refused to budge since around the 1950s. We'd all be undoubtedly happier if we followed the maxims in the art of belonging. And I'd like to conclude the vote of thanks with Robert Wilson's words in the review in the Canberra Times on Saturday. He said, quote, Hugh is a most perceptive recorder of his fellow Australians. In a gentle and persuasive style, and we saw that tonight, he holds a mirror up to us, and each of us is sure to recognize something of ourselves. He wants us to take responsibility, just not for ourselves, but the place in which we live. Ladies and gentlemen, please thank again Hugh McKay. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.